May last year. This happened. Uh, Quant, that's Qantas CEO Alan Joyce. He's at a breakfast in Perth, a business breakfast. And a guy called Tony Overhue, who's a, who's a Christian, a local guy, purchased a lemon meringue pie. He went into the event early, hid behind a curtain, and as Alan Joyce started his, event, his uh, speech, pushed the pie into his face. It went viral on social media and the news. Why did he do that? In his statement, Mr. Overhue accused corporate Australia of being involved in social engineering. He said companies should not take positions in support of social issues, and issues such as marriage equality, which was the issue public at the time, should be decided by democratic process, not by these corporate CEOs. That was his basic protest. So here's a guy, a Christian guy, he believes that something is wrong in the culture. And, you know, people throughout history have faced that issue. Christians have faced this issue. There's something about the culture that I don't like. I think it's ungodly. Uh, And how do you address this? So in, in Tony's thinking process, the best way to deal with it was to get a pie and push it in the guy's face. Now, he does regret that. <laughs> he, he looks back on that and said, maybe it wasn't such a good decision uh, to do that. Here's another group of people you might be familiar with, or, may, or maybe not, probably you hope you're not. Uh, Christians have protested society in many ways over the years. This is a group called Westboro Baptist, you might have heard of them. Uh, they're known for their public stands against all sorts of things. And this is actually a fairly mild photo. It gets a lot worse if you see some of the things these guys actually put out there publicly. So you get this issue of pushing a pie in someone's face, protesting publicly. The question is, how should a Christian respond when the culture seems to be not quite where you'd like it to be? When, it shows, when a non-Christian culture shows non-Christian values, uh, what do you do about that? Now, who decides, of course, is a big issue. What are non-Christian Christian values? But when the society in your perception seems to be ungodly, how do you respond to that? What do you do with that? So is our culture inherently anti-Christian? Has God abandoned the world to its own devices? Is there nothing godly about our society? Should Christians take a stand against the world? You know, the good news is we're not the first people in history who've had to deal with these questions. Uh, there are some helpful guidelines in our book. So uh, this is, I want to read today, and, and we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about movies this month, but today's an introduction to movies. Why would we use movies uh, in, in a Christian talk? And this is Acts 17, and it comes from a context where Paul the Apostle is, uh, comes to Athens. And we read this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This is the center of Greek culture and learning for centuries. The Romans took a lot of the Greek ideas and kind of added technology. But the heart of the the cultural um, creativity really was the Greek culture. So Paul comes to Athens. Maybe it's his first time there. We're not sure. And he sees many idols. He sees statues of gods all over the place. And it says he's greatly distressed. Greatly distressed that the city is filled with idols. Now that feeling, distress, that there's idols around, that's something that Christians have faced through history. He's greatly distressed. The culture is idolatrous. Can you identify that feeling? 
You ever looked out and thought, there's, there's some things about the culture that are idolatrous. Some things that are happening and it provokes distress. I wish it wasn't the case. What do you do with that feeling? The way Paul responds in Acts 17, I think, is a helpful pattern or paradigm for how we should respond when culture is idolatrous. How do, what do we do when we live in a city that is full of idols? So let's read. This is further in Acts 17. Here's Paul's response. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul, in responding uh, to this distress, he says he enters a dialogue. Literally, the word is dialogue. Uh, He reasons with them. Generally, a dialogue is a two-way conversation. He starts a conversation, but it's more than that. It's, it's a conversation which has a direction. It has a purpose. He wants to communicate something. He wants to get something across. Not just chatting, but actually communicating with a purpose. What is his point? His point, the summary of all this, he wants to tell them about Jesus and the resurrection. That's his basic message. He dialogues in the synagogue and in the marketplace. So in the religious world and in the secular world, Jesus and the resurrection is relevant in both of those areas. It's a Christian message, very clearly. Uh, And Paul converses with people about this message, Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, He he has enough of these conversations that people are interested enough and they say, "We we want to know more about what it is you're talking about. We don't quite understand it. So let's enter a dialogue Uh, the next uh, part in verse 19 goes on they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas so they want to bring him to the Areopagus or the it's called the hill of Ares It's a large, rocky outcrop in the city. And this is historically in Athens. This is the place where people have, many historical things have happened here. And they kind of have trials there. They have debating, figuring out what is true and what is not. And the Athenians loved, they had this culture of investigation. And so they bring Paul to this Areopagus where they're going to talk about, they want him to talk about his new ideas. So Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul gets the invitation. He stands up in a city he's distressed that's full of idols. Uh, He's been in discussions probably for days. He's got this fire inside him. He wants to make a point but he doesn't throw a pie in their face. He doesn't protest with signs and banners. He doesn't get the Bible out even and give them a proof text to say, this proves that you're wrong. And I think what happens here is kind of pregnant with possibility about what communication can look like with culture. 
I think we're in a time in history where many Christians are distressed about the number of idols. We want to share the message of Jesus and the resurrection, but maybe we feel people aren't listening and the old approaches of confronting people aren't, aren't working if they ever worked. So what Paul does here, I think, is a, is a key thing about communicating the Christian message to culture. He stands up. You're a very religious people. He compliments on them. He compliments them on their idolatry. You guys are very religious. That's a good thing. That's got to be a good thing. You're seeking God in some way. And he doesn't take them straight to the Bible, which we may go, go, think of going to. He starts where they're at. He starts with where they're at. <laughs> You guys are very religious. Let's talk about this unknown God that you even have an inscription and an altar to. Let's start there. He hones in on one of their idols to talk about it. He takes an element of the culture that he's wanting to connect to, the idols that he's been provoked by, and starts his conversation there. There's something about this, I think. Starting with an element of the culture. Now, Paul is distressed by the idols, but he doesn't allow his anger fire inside to overcome the idea. He's more, important, more focused on communicating. He might be offended by the idols, but he's going to have a strategic way of going about his communication. His feelings about being offended actually have to be put down so that you have an effective communication to them so he can connect with them. Sometimes Christians communicate with society out of anger, out of hatred, out of how can it be like this? We've got to change it. At least that's how it's perceived. When the pie was put in the CEO Alan Joyce's face, uh, that, he was angry. Alan Joyce left that meeting, cleaned himself up and came back to a standing ovation. What a great leader that guy is to be able to put up with persecution from the religious sector. That was the effect publicly. People remarked how composed he was. And they remarked how stupid the Christian was. That was the effect of that communication. People weren't talking about Jesus and the resurrection after that event. They were talking about Alan Joyce and his courage. They were mocking the Christian for his beliefs. In, any, in sporting terms, maybe you consider this an own goal or friendly fire in military terms. Paul takes the things he finds confronting, the idols, and doesn't back away. He begins the conversation there. Because that's where his audience is at, and that's what dialogue is about. Let's go to the next one. Um, and this is how he starts. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So Paul gives a kind of an account of who God is and who humanity is. He's not quoting the Bible, but the This is the story of the Bible he's giving and the story of God. God is the creator. He made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. 
And if that's true, then logically God does not live in, he cannot be expressed by a statue. He cannot be contained by a building, no matter how grand that building is. If God is this creator of all things, you cannot capture God in a statue or in a building. It's like someone saying, or it's like uh, you know, a dog who has a kennel getting complimented for building the house of the master. It's crazy. You cannot possibly provide for the needs of this great creator by giving worship and offerings to that God. It doesn't work like that. God, the creator, gives everyone all things, life and breath and everything else. You can't provide for God. It is this God who provides for you. This God made all people, all societies. He's in control of history. Uh, He has determined where people live, how cultures develop. That's the God that is being talked about. And he kind of summarizes a biblical view of a big God, the creator of everything, not contained by systems of human worship, in control of all history. That's God, as Paul understands. And he goes on, God did this, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So this massive God, what's the purpose of all history and humanity and guiding society? Well, God wants people to seek him. God wants them to reach out for him and find him. And there is in human beings a tendency, we want to do that. We want to seek God. We want to find God somehow. In cultures, individuals, people seek God. In some versions of the Bible, it uses the word grope for him. <laughs> seek him. It, it's groping. And the implication is like, it's like we're in the darkness and we're reaching out. What's around us? What is this universe like? Is there a God? Can we actually get a handle on God? All the while, the lights are off and we're sort of groping around in the darkness like sort of searching for the light switch, but in the darkness. We can't see much, but we're looking and we're hoping one day the light will come on so we can see. We're getting an idea of what God is like. It's like the furniture in the room. What is this reality like? I can get some sort of a sense of what the room is like, but I can't see it clearly. And you see this in different cultures around the world. Every culture has a search for God. And most individuals have some sort of a search for God. We're groping around, trying to find out what God is like. In all cultures, there's rituals, there's practices, there's symbols and stories and beliefs about what God is like, what it means to be human. What does it mean to live a good life? All all cultures try and answer these questions, trying to put together a picture of who God is and what the world is like. And in the darkness of a fallen world, where God's presence is not clear, it's not obvious, the truth maybe has been lost, people groped around in the darkness, and they've come up with theories and beliefs about God. And in this case, Paul is in Greece. He's in Athens. So he reaches into the Greek culture, and he finds that over the years in the Greek culture, people have been writing about God. They've been writing about what they've tried to discover about God. And some of the gropings that they've had, some of the, some of the impressions of God, some of the theories that they've got about God have actually been quite accurate. 
he finds. They've come up with some truth about God in their culture. And in this section, Paul quotes from two Greek poets. So the, the words, in him we live and move and have our being, though as Christians we would say that that's Paul's words, they are words from Greek poets, from a Greek poet. It comes from a guy, Epimenides. It's actually quoted from, get this, a, a work called A Hymn to Zeus. It's a pagan worship hymn, and Paul quotes it in his Christian sermon. But he sees something in these words that are true. Even though the writer is thinking about the pagan god's use, the truth is that in this particular, when you look at this work, it's actually quite amazing. Um, as he talks about Zeus and talks about God, he's talking about a great God, a creator God, a God that permeates all things, that all people need this God. This God is big enough to encompass everything. All of our lives should revolve around this God. This God is the only one that can sustain us in our lives. God is alive. He's not dead. He's eternally available as the source of life and power for human beings. So close that he's actually accessible. Now these words were written about Zeus. And they were groping around. What would God be like? And not all the Greek culture talks about Zeus like this, but this particular writer does. The one in whom we live and move and have our being, which we think sounds very much like the God of the Bible. The Greeks might not have known the God of the Bible in the same way that the Hebrews, the Israelites did, but they were groping around and hoping and longing and writing about such a God. So Paul uses those words. Your own poets say this sort of thing about an unknown God that you're not so sure about, but I look in your history and your poetry and I see there's something about what they're groping for that is actually accurate about who God is. Despite all the idolatry that's there, there's evidence of another God who is greater than all of these idols and actually you live and move and have your being in this God. That's the first quote that Paul uses in Acts 17. The second quote is, we are his offspring. There's a quote from Aratus, a poet who wrote about the weather and the stars. And right at the start of the work, he praises Zeus. But his view of Zeus is very similar to the God of the Bible. All people had an, have a need of Zeus. He speaks He's all-pervasive. He's the spirit who provides for humanity. He guides the stars and the weather. This God that Aratus was speaking about, not that Jesus is not always portrayed that way, but in this case he is remarkably like the God of the Bible. And so when he says, we are his offspring, Paul quotes those words. He's thinking humanity is made by this God, this God is too big to be contained by buildings or temples or by, even by people. This God is too big to need anything from us. It would be crazy to think that all of our religion can actually satisfy this God or somehow provide for this God's needs. Paul quotes this from Aratus, And of course, it's very similar to the theology of the Old Testament. 
God is Father, creator of all, human beings made in his image, his offspring. So Paul sees no problem in taking what is true from this culture uh, and utilizing it even in the preaching of a sermon. He says to the philosophers, you guys are familiar with this tradition. Let me, let me sort of take some of that tradition and say that what I'm talking about is very consistent with at least part of your tradition. They're very idolatrous in Athens. Paul says, let's go back and talk about this unknown God and say there's something about one of the gods you've been groping for in history. That's the God I'm talking about. Their own poets testify that there is this God, that they have sought for this God. Being Greek doesn't have to mean that you worship idols. You can be Greek, you can know your poets, and you can actually worship this true, real, living creator God. These descriptions of God found in the poets are actually good starting points for him to share the good news of the resurrection of Jesus a good bridge to cross so that he can communicate with these people and introduce some ideas about God. Now, some people may be familiar with this book. Has anyone read that book? Seen that book? Um, it's a book about a guy called Don Richardson was a missionary in Erie and Jaya, Western New Guinea. He wrote this book and he basically says that throughout the world, in, in cultures throughout the world, there are stories, there are dreams, there are rituals, there are aspects of that culture that are amazingly similar and speak about a God who is incredibly like the God you read about in the Bible. It's like the truth of God kind of bubbles up all over the world in many different cultures. And God has revealed himself in what he's made, in the stars, in the history and cultures of the world. Ideas about God, not all the ideas about God, but some of the ideas about God that people have, some of the gropings that they've had, actually is accurate, helpful, similar to the God of the Bible. The title of this book comes, comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He has made everything appropriate in its time, is set eternity in their hearts, so that people will not cannot find out the work which God has done for them from the beginning for him. They have this desire, but they don't have all the knowledge. And very often you find in some missionary stories, the key to preaching the, the, the gospel, the, the Christian good news, comes via a story that they find as a bridge into that culture. And that opens the door for people to believe. The view of God that was actually already in their culture becomes an avenue through which they understand Jesus. Now, sadly, I think we've narrowed the view of the Bible and we've said that, well, the only truth there is comes in the Bible. There's no other truth in the world. That's a narrow... I don't think the Bible makes that sort of a claim about itself. That doesn't diminish the Bible to say there's other truth as well. It doesn't mean that the Bible is not the reliable standard by which we go by. But it means there are other, other uh, revelations or uh, aspects of truth that we can actually build bridges into in various cultures. Paul quotes the Greek poets, the missionaries use stories and rituals from culture to point to the truth about God. There are many different ways we can talk about God. Being sensitive to how cultures 
approach that, those questions, their stories, their beliefs, is often the first step to the door opening. I'm not talking about other gods. I'm talking about uh, communication of Jesus and the resurrection. God has revealed himself in many ways in different cultures. There are many starting points in cultures for the communication of the good news. Paul continues. Uh, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. It doesn't make sense if this aspect of God is true, that he is this wonderful creator God, that you could contain him in an idol or a statue or a worship system or a building. And Paul says, there's been a whole lot of ignorance in the world and God overlooked all that. It was okay, but he says, now something has happened and God has changed. He's saying, I'm now calling all nations to repentance. It's like the groping for God that's been going on through history. And they've they've been in darkness and they've come up with some aspects of God. But it's been in the dark and what now God has done, he's turned the light on. The light has come on into the world. God has shown himself. And what have we seen? We've seen Jesus. God has sent his son. His son has come into the world. His son has been killed and has been raised from death. And God has set a day that he will judge the world. He will bring an accountability to the whole world through this one he's raised from the dead. That's the message Paul is giving the Athenians. That's the good news. It's a confronting message because it talks about a day of judgment. But not just of judgment, also of release from judgment. In the story of Jesus that Paul talks about in this uh, aspect in, in Athens, but actually also in the book of Acts generally, he focuses on the resurrection, on the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. That is the good news. God has done something that's never been done before And in this, there is hope for the future. Idolatry, worshipping idols, doesn't cut it in light of this thing that God has done by coming and dying and rising and calling us to follow. The resurrection of Jesus says this is God's appointed man. He is the judge of all. And the implication is you'd better get right with this guy. You'd better change. You'd better change your attitude. Get on the right side of the God who will one day bring all things to account. Leave the idols behind. Come and follow this risen Jesus. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Some people sneer. The resurrection is not a popular message in Greece. But some want to hear more. Some become followers of Paul and therefore of Jesus. You never know how many will respond or how, who actually will. 
But even in this culture that is idolatrous, God has not left himself without witness. There were historically ways that God has spoken into that culture. And Paul uses those ways and said, and now let me tell you about Jesus. There are clues about the truth of God all through the world. Some people hear the message, they believe. If God has raised Jesus from the dead, something is different about this particular man. He is the judge. We'd better listen. We'd better put things right. We'd better leave our idols behind. Let's find out more about this poor guy. Let's find out more about this Jesus he talks about. And so a journey of faith begins. Without a single quote from the Bible. In fact, Paul Paul builds his case on the quotations of the philosophers. His argument is biblical, but he doesn't quote the Bible. And on the message of Jesus and his resurrection. Which brings us to the idea of movies. So we're going to look at a number of movies this month. You might have already seen the logic. People grope for God in a fallen world. They stumble in the dark. But sometimes they hit on really helpful ideas, really helpful aspects of truth. Popular culture is uh, wrestling with, with ideas And in some cases, is bringing to the surface truths about God. The issues of our day, you know, the stories, the passions, the problems, screenwriters and novelists are wrestling with these things and they're creating stories. Helpful ideas bubble to the surface in those stories. Some of them are put on our screens, our cinema screens. And just as Paul saw the gropings for God in the poets of the Old Testament, of of the Greek history and some of which had come to expression in their writings, as we watch movies, we will in all likelihood be seeing some of the gropings for God come to the surface. For for who God is, what life means, some of it will be very accurate and will be a very helpful bridge for communicating the truth about Jesus. Here's some examples uh, from recent ones I'd like you to, maybe not that recent, but recent for me. Seen this movie. Now, if you're looking for an accurate theological treatise on God, probably not the place to go. But there are some profound moments in this movie that describe some aspects of truth about God. I find that in this movie, the treatment about prayer is actually very helpful. Bruce takes on the responsibility. He's been criticizing God. And then God says, okay, will you take over? And all of a sudden, you know, Bruce starts to get all these voices in his head. And he realizes they're the prayers of humanity thousands upon thousands of voices he can't cope with it all so he just decides he's going to say yes to everything and if you've seen the movie uh can god say yes to every prayer that's a big question but it turns out absolute chaos because some requests are contradictory to others god just can't say yes to everyone that's an important theological statement in this movie Here's another one. Uh, you might recognize this from the Matrix. There's a choice, a red pill or a blue pill. And, and at this point, the script says this. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill and you stay in Wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. It puts before us a reality. There are choices to be made. 
Life is about choices. You can pretend the world is all nice and inviting and everything is okay. Just don't worry about things. It'll be okay. The world is a nice place. Or you can take the other pill. You can make a choice. There are some very hard realities around this world. There is evil in this world. We are slaves. And if I take this pill and face the truth, my life is going to be different than if I pretend everything is okay. That's a profound theological statement in that movie. Following Jesus is a bit like that choice. And here's another one. I'm not going to give you the ending of this movie. Has anyone seen this movie? This movie, I think, uh, has deep Christian significance. It comes from an unlikely source. It's Clint Eastwood. On the surface, it's another American movie about guns and violence and all that stuff. And to some extent, that's what it is. And that's all it is. But in this movie, there's an incredibly uh, profound story that plays out. I'm not going to give it away. I'm going to get you to watch the movie, if you can, at some point. It's a beautiful story. In the last 10 minutes of the movie, there's a deeply moving portrayal of redemption in a very Christian way. If you've seen it, you'll know what I mean. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and watch that movie and ask yourself this question. What is the picture of redemption that comes out of this movie? Truth bubbles up in culture. I think movies are a really good starting point for analysing where our cultures are at and for crossing bridges with people, scenes, dialogue, parts of movies, sometimes even the whole movie. It's, it's, it's giving witness to something about the truth of God, preparing people's hearts to receive Jesus and the resurrection and the hope that comes by following him. So we're back to our starting point. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I don't think we're going to change that overnight. <laughs> Paul is distressed. Does that mean it's time for despair? Is that to, does that mean God has abandoned the world and this culture? Is it time to shut the doors of the church and just keep the world out? Is it time to get angry and throw a pie in someone's face? No, I think it's time to engage. God has not left himself without witness. In the stories and ideals of culture, even our culture, bubbling up as people grope for God, as they wrestle with what life is about, even in the darkness, truth comes to the surface. Uh, It may not be totally true, it may not be accurate in every detail, but, but discerning people can see things about culture that's truth is coming to the surface. We don't have to reject those cultural insights because they're not actually in the Bible. As Paul does, we can utilize those elements of culture as a bridge to creating understanding, to communicating with people, to be able to share the good news of Jesus and the resurrection that God has finally turned on the light and this is what all of these wrestlings for truth actually lead to. We're going to share in communion together.